This is World to Win, bringing you the latest news and analysis from a socialist perspective. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 39 of World to Win. Don't forget to subscribe to our channel and also click the bell button to be notified when we go live and when we upload new videos. Uh, It's always really good, so you really should do that. Now, today we're going to talk about the world economic crisis. We're going to examine the situation and then ask whether modern monetary theory is the answer to all of the world's problems. Uh, if, we, if you don't know what it is, don't worry yet, um, because everyone can listen to this show and we're going to, going to properly explain what we mean by it and what it is. So please stay tuned in either way. But before we delve into it, I want to say hello to my co-host. How are you doing, Toya? I'm great, and Yara, I'm glad you said, in case you don't know what it is, you can still watch, because I will admit, before we got introduced to this topic, I had no idea what it was. I heard some people talking about it, so I'm really excited for this episode. Um, But I've been good. How have you been? What have you been up to this past week? I mean, I've been mainly reading up about monetary theory, because I don't know anything about it, or at least didn't. Now I understand it a little bit more, but I'm sure this episode is going to help me. And other than that, I was actually at a really cool and inspiring conference that we had of uh, our international i was at our international international women's conference and it was so cool we had about 80 representatives from about 22 countries um really exciting stuff really interesting and it's so good you know to see an organization because you know the left notoriously bad on these subjects. Um, it's so good to see that organization is taking those subjects seriously and really dealing with the difficult questions about women's oppression. So I'm feeling really inspired after this week. How, what, what have you been doing? Well, I was not at an inspiring international women's um, conference, so I'm a little bit jealous, I'm not gonna lie. Um, but we're in April now, so the weather's been nice. So I've been getting some hiking in and of course, reading like always. I mean, that is great. Here, the weather has not been very nice, but I mean, it, it rarely is. So. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm happy for you. You know, you can, you can be jealous of the conference. I can be jealous of the weather. Perfect. So, <laughs> so I think uh, we can start with the first part of uh, today's show. We're going to talk a little bit about kind of the, the situation and the problem before we start talking about MMT. So... On top of the hundreds of millions infected by COVID-19 and also the millions that have lost their lives to the virus itself, we're also living through a period of deep economic crisis on a scale that is comparable to the Great Depression now, you know, always has talked about how it was so, so big. It was like in in every history class. Um, But we are in a comparable situation right now. And in 2020, the global economy is estimated to have contracted by a massive 4.3%. And more importantly, behind this figure is a devastating human toll from the pandemic. And as large, large sections of the economy are basically ground to a halt, Working people across the world have had their lives turned upside down by mass layoffs and also the precarity and poverty that comes with unemployment and not to mention the health situation in the background of that. A recent UN report, for example, said that the number of people at risk of starvation is more than 270 million. That is an incredible number and that, was, that is double Uh, the number before the pandemic. Yet, 
it hasn't been bad for everyone. Um, we've seen a bonanza of soaring stock, stock markets. And we've even seen a new report from Forbes that reported that globally the number of billionaires has increased by 30% during the pandemic, which is disgusting to say the least. But now capitalist institutions like the OECD and the IMF are projecting a huge economic rebound in 2021. But at the same time, we're seeing that contraction from before. So we, and, and at the same time, they're saying that they're, they're basically more optimistic about the coming six months um, and, and more than that. So this is really confusing and we want to make sense of all of it. So we've, we're joined today uh, by Tom Crean from Socialist Alternative in the US. How are you doing, Tom? What, what have you been up to? Um, I'm fine. I've been preparing for this, I guess. That's good. Have you been reading anything interesting recently? Um, yeah, I'm reading a lot about the uh, period between World War One and World War Two because I think that's very relevant to the situation we're in now. So I've been reading a book by uh, AJP Taylor called um, "From um, What's It Called?" From Potsdam. No, I'm getting it wrong. Anyway, I'll tell you later what it's called. Thank you. I mean, I think it's really interesting because everyone comp is comparing the situation right now to the Cold War. So thinking about the period that, that was kind of like the start, um, even before the start of it, is really interesting to compare. And I'm sure we'll talk about this more today. Uh, but also, we are joined by Tony, uh, who's also from the US. So how are you doing, Tony? Hey, uh, I'm doing well. Uh, I'm enjoying the weather, like Toya. Uh, and I've been reading about uh, more about modern monetary theory. Um, one of its main proponents, uh, Stephanie Kelton, who, is the, uh, the, who was the senior economic advisor to Bernie Sanders uh, for both of his presidential runs, she put out a new article this week in the New York Times talking about how uh, Biden's, plan, uh, Biden's uh, stimulus plan for like, the, the new infrastructure bill does not go far enough, which I think is, is an, uh, an absolutely correct position decision to take. Um, and then she says some interesting things about uh, paying for it. And I think we'll uh, discuss that uh, in uh, the upcoming section. I really can't wait to hear about it. And I really can't wait to hear more about what it actually means. And is it a socialist theory as well? So can't wait for it. But before we go into that, I want to kind of ask a more general question about the crisis that we're in right now. So, you know, as the vaccine is being rolled out now, there's this optimism in some circles about lockdowns ending, uh, businesses being able to reopen, and also generally economic growth restarting again. But that optimism is based on an assumption that is not necessarily the truth, that we are turning a, co a corner with COVID. And really any projection about the, econo the economy depends on the perspectives for the pandemic right now because there's been kind of like a massive blow to the economy generally and also the success or or the failure of the vaccine rollout so first can you talk can you can you give us like a little update on covid and also how covid affects the economic outlook for the world economy right now yeah so uh, as you said, the projections for growth um, are very optimistic. Um, the OECD projects 5.6% uh, 
um, economic growth in globally in uh, 2021. And it is based on some very optimistic assumptions. And um, many of those have to do with, with the pandemic. Now, of course, it is the case that the vaccines uh, that have um, uh, you know, been rolled out are proving pretty effective so far. Um, and in some countries, you know, there've been a lot of, uh, of, of shots put in people's arms. So um, the US and the UK, after a disastrous handling of the pandemic, are now, you know, in the, uh, the rich countries, uh, the imperialist countries are kind of uh, leading the way. In the US, it's something like 35% have had at least one shot. I believe in the UK, it's more like 50%. Um, the EU lags significantly behind. Uh, if you take Germany, for example, it's more like 15%. Um, but the issue here is it's a kind of race between vaccination and the variants. Um, and you have variants now that are much more infectious. Um, so even in the US, right at the moment, there are states where the, uh, there's, a, there's a fourth wave uh, in reality, like the state of Michigan, and their healthcare system is being overwhelmed. Um, so you have that problem even as, as it stands. And the longer you have the situation where it's just the rich countries that have a high level of vaccination and you know the rest of the world is extremely low, or in some cases, in many countries, there's really been no vaccination done yet, you're basically leaving the field clear for uh, more dangerous va uh, variants to develop and, um, and possibly variants that can actually break through uh, the vaccines that exist right now. And uh, so, you know, in, in Brazil, there's been um, a very dangerous uh, variant in the, in the recent past. Uh, they say that possibly the, the, the South, so-called South African variant could break through the Pfizer uh, vaccine uh, to some degree. So, the, the, what we are seeing is actually that capitalism is uh, completely unable, uh, despite you know the amazing breakthroughs that have been made with vaccination, to really have a globally coordinated plan to deal with a global crisis. So instead, what we have is vaccine nationalism. You know, we have major countries hoarding the vaccine, um, preventing exports of vaccines that are produced on their own territory. Or in the case of China and Russia, using um, you know their own vaccines as kind of part of their diplomatic approach to trying to get certain countries on side, poor poorer countries on side with them. Uh, but there's no there's no global coordination, and this is a very dangerous situation. It's even dangerous, you know, from the point of view of the capitalists. But because of the especially the rivalry, uh, the the conflict between the U.S. and China, they're kind of locked into this uh, uh, approach, which is extremely damaging and can really undermine the recovery. It's really interesting what you say, Tom, about this whole vaccine nationalism. I just read an article that said, uh, you know, a country like Haiti hasn't even received a single dose of the vaccine, which is absolutely insane and completely unfair, especially for countries that, you know, desperately need it. Um, but as Yara, you know, introduced uh, this discussion today, she was mentioning how um, after, you know, the pandemic hit, we now have twice the number of people that are facing food insecurities. So it's clear that this pandemic really pushed um, us over the edge. But 
that doesn't necessarily mean that um, the pandemic caused the entire economic collapse. You know, in 2019, before the pandemic, we were on our way um, to, you know, recession-like um, economy. So, you know, with that in mind, Tom, can you explain, you know, what type of recovery, um, you know, we are to expect? Uh, well, I mean, to take the kind of immediate conjuncture that we're in, uh, we should actually expect, as long as there isn't, um, you know, some disastrous situation with variants in the next six months, we should actually expect that there will be a significant economic rebound, at least in the wealthier countries. And that's because of, uh, of pent-up demand. You know, a lot of middle-class people, uh, even some working-class people were able to work from home, kept their jobs, saved money. But the bigger factor is the... Um, the stimulus, you know, massive um, uh, injections of money into um, into the economies of many rich countries, as well, of course, as the monetary kind of uh, fire hose that was used last year to prop up uh, the markets. Um, and this was done on a level, you know, that was unprecedented. I mean, to get comparison, you have to look at the, the 1930s, the New Deal. Um, like the U.S. stimulus measures have been equal to 27% of GDP in Germany, probably 20%, in Japan, 30%. So, you know, that's that's kind of the the, the main reason why we're going to see a significant um, rebound. But at the same time, there are, as you said, a whole number of factors that were already undermining uh, the global economy, low productivity uh, growth being a reflection of uh, the fact that capitalists today um, find it hard to, to make a profit uh, through uh, investing in expanding production. And so, you know, their investment, their the excess capital has been just poured into the casino, uh, the, the, the casinos of the markets. And what that, and that process continued absolutely in, in 2020. And what that points to is, is bubbles that can burst um, on the stock market, and um, you know, there's there's also the the uh, massive indebtedness of uh, many uh, poor countries that could lead to other crises, um, and even the you know the, the rebound itself could um, could lead to, in the short term anyway, a burst of inflation, and then they have to rise. They they may be forced, uh, like the Fed in the U.S. Uh, other central banks to raise interest rates. And everything they've been doing for the last year and a half has been based on having extremely low interest rates. They raise interest rates that could cut directly across this rebound. It's an extremely unstable situation. So, I mean, you can't put, you can't say, oh, well, it'll last this long. But um, contrary to what the IMF and OECD seem to be projecting, um, it this is very likely to be a short-term uh, rebound, though it could look, you know, and feel, at least for sections of the population. I mean, even in the rich countries, there'll be a lot of people who are not going to feel it uh, so much because they're they're heavily indebted, uh, many millions of people in the U.S. But you know, that's that's what we're looking at. Well, unfortunately for us, Tom, this is not the first recession that we've experienced even in the past, you know, two decades. Um, you know, the 2007-2008 uh, Great Recession that the world experienced was detrimental. People lost their homes. People lost their jobs for years. Unemployment was through the roof. 
But at that time, um, you know, countries like the U.S. and China were able to work together to try to fix the world economy. But as we talked about in a few episodes uh, previously, you know, there's this inter-imperialist tension that exists among the U.S. and China. So how do you see that having an effect um, on the situation? Yeah, I think this is going to have a really big effect um, over the next period. You know, just in the last couple of weeks, um, you can see that there's these major uh, brands like H&M that have been boycotted in China with, you know, these are kind of uh, boycotts um, driven on social media, but with the backing of the state. And the reason um, these are Western brands, clothing brands, um, and the reason for the the boycott is because H&M, for example, um, you know, issued some statement condemning the Chinese regime for what's happening in Xinjiang uh, to the Uyghur people. And this, uh, you know, is under pressure from uh, probably their, their customers in the West and governments in the West. So they, they took that position. Um, the U.S. government says that you shouldn't be, uh, be using any cotton that's made in Xinjiang. But that's a huge producer of cotton. So they took that position and then basically there was the boycott in China. So they're kind of caught between, you know, the Chinese regime and the West. It's just an example, a concrete example of the kind of um, pressures that are going to be brought to bear and uh, that have, will have real economic effects. So what we've seen over the last while is a decoupling uh, between the U.S. and Chinese economy, and that's likely to, to worsen. Uh, you're seeing, you know, in, in the course of the pandemic, the whole just-in-time model for uh, production and, you know, the global supply chains uh, was really exposed as a, as seriously problematic when, um, you know, hospitals needed PPE and didn't have it on hand. And then, you know, there was just these huge strains that were put on the, the supply chains. I mean, obviously, recently we had the emblematic situation in the Suez Canal with the, that ship blocking it. Um, and uh, in general, what we are likely to see is a breakup of a kind of unified global supply chain into smaller supply chains and governments increasingly intervening in the US and other countries into their, into their economies to kind of uh, develop or strengthen what they would see as strategic sectors and to bring production closer to home, more under their control, less susceptible to the supply chain issues, um, you know, and that's that's connected to more protectionism. And all of this is going to undermine the global economy. Yeah, I think this is really interesting to see kind of the way that the capitalist class is dealing with those problems. But at the same time, we're seeing kind of like the glaring irrationality of capitalism. We always talk about these kind of contradictions, but I think this crisis has really shown it. Like we've seen while there's a pandemic, while there's massive unemployment, while there's more precarity than ever, at the same time, we're seeing the stock markets soaring. We're seeing them kind of, we're seeing all these billionaires getting more and more and more money. And that just like I think it's really difficult to understand why this is the case. So, Tony, can you kind of explain why this is happening and why? What does it tell us about the nature of global capitalism today? Sure, Yara. Um, so, what we are seeing is uh, commonly reported in the media as a uh, K-shaped recovery, 
Um, I think it's uh, obvious that the coronavirus has been an opportunity for the rich to become even more fabulously wealthy while uh, working people are, are suffering. Um, and there's many reasons for this. So uh, the, the most obvious things is that the, uh, the majority of the stimulus money has gone to uh, corporate welfare. We saw that with uh, both the, the bailouts in the 2008 crisis and also kind of the bailouts that happened uh, with the uh, Trump's stimulus plan during uh, 2020. Um, corporations have been taking this money and they're really sitting on it and not really investing it or, uh, or create creating jobs or anything like that because there's been a lack of profitable investment opportunities. Um, investment is really important because uh, jobs, employment, and so on uh, come, come from investment. But uh, the advanced capitalist economies have been suffering from a long-running uh, lack of, uh, of, of um, investment even before the coronavirus crisis. We've seen a, uh, a decade-long uh, stagnation in the growth of productivity. And the nature of the global economy for the last decade has really been a lot of money looking for investments, unable to find a profitable outlet, and plowing that into speculation. And so uh, one area of speculation we've seen has been the stock market, and this makes up uh, uh, part of the massive wealth gain of billionaires like Jeff Bezos, uh, whose uh, holdings in, in, in Amazon uh, contributes to uh, a massive increase in, in, in his wealth uh, because a lot of speculative money is pouring into the stock market. A lot of speculative money is also pouring into, um, into the housing market as well. Additionally, uh, in, or, in order to uh, boost profits, corporations have been uh, uh, really trying to get more out of workers. There's been a progressive um, uh, uh, kind of squeeze, like basically trying to squeeze uh, money from a stone, right? There, there's been uh, faster and faster speed up of work. There's the um, introduction of lean manufacturing and just-in-time uh, supply chains, as Tom had talked about. And what that's done, uh, and this is happening alongside the tax on uh, healthcare, tax on social programs. And, and what's that done is uh, it's really uh, taking away things that workers used to have and and and. Uh, uh, giving that wealth to, uh, to to corporations, so I think what we we've, we've seen is a an economic system where the uh, drive for profit has really um, uh, squeezed out uh, workers and and really contributed to uh, the, the the massive wealth gain of billionaires. It would be hard to imagine before the pandemic, the ruling class doing some of the things that they've done to try to tackle this crisis. Um, you know, they've almost taken that um, neoliberal playbook and kind of thrown it out the window. Um, and, you know, one really striking example is uh, Biden's stimulus that uh, just recently passed, which was $1.9 trillion. And as the previous speaker um, mentioned, most of that money went to corporate welfare while they gave us workers, you know, a piddly $1,400, which I gave directly to Capital One. Um, but they are changing course. Um, so, Tom, can you talk about, you know, this change and how significant it is? Um, so, yeah, it is a very big uh, uh, change. Um, and um, I think what is behind it is first of all the scale of this crisis you know if they had not taken the measures that they took last year 
the scale of stimulus, the monetary intervention. Uh, even in the richest countries, there would have been an absolute economic collapse and there would have been mass destitution. It would have been literally like you know, the Great Depression of the 1930s. And even with the interventions, you know, you had millions of people in the US who did not have enough to eat and still don't actually. So uh, there's that. Uh, there's also that they're trying to learn, like the Biden people, they say this, and I think it's true. They're trying to learn the lessons of 0809, where they didn't, um, they feel that they didn't put in enough stimulus and that this meant that the recovery was, as a result, very, very slow and, and halting. So I think that's, um, you know, uh, those are real factors. Um, but I think that what we also have to see, you know, for Marxists, what's really uh, important is the political context um, and the relationship of class forces. You know, that's what makes Marxist political economy uh, different to, you know, the, the capitalist analysis. And so we've already referred to the inter-imperialist conflict that's going on, how that's going to have an effect on the economy. And what that expresses is the the reassertion of the contradiction between the development of productive forces under capitalism, uh, creating a global economy and the nation state form. But also what we're seeing in the world is, you know, in the last two years, massive revolts by, especially by young people, um, against corrupt regimes uh, and against the effects of neoliberalism. Just look at what's happening in Myanmar today. You know, uh, that's a revolt of the working class, uh, general strikes and trying to end uh, a military uh, dictatorship. In the US, we had the biggest protest movement in US history uh, with Black Lives Matter last year. And in reality, part of what's happening with these policies, uh, and to take the US again specifically, is a situation that they've lost control of the situation. I mean, it wasn't just BLM, but it was also what happened on January 6th with the attempted right wing uh, coup um, at the US Capitol. And so they need to, to create confidence in the state and, um, and they need to, to, in a sense, get ahead of the next revolt by, um, uh, by actually doing some things that ordinary people will see as you know, being beneficial. So it's not just the, the stimulus, but of course, now there's a proposal from the Biden administration for three to $4 trillion uh, in further spending on infrastructure um, you know, and, and that's kind of defined quite broadly, but it's also supposed to be related to fighting climate change, et cetera. Frankly, it's still deeply inadequate to what is really required to fight climate change. I mean, it's, it's, it's nowhere near what's going to be required. Um, but that is even another factor, you know, in the whole situation, which shows how over-optimistic our friends at the IMF are um, when climate change is going to also perhaps be the most important factor undermining the global economy going forward. So um, yes, they've had to change course in a very big way. Um, then the neoliberal era, not, not neoliberal policies necessarily, but the neoliberal era is over. Uh, and we are in a very different and very unstable situation for capitalism. They have no, they have no road to, to kind of a stable growth position, even kind of the position they had in the 90s or the early 2000s. And that is going to create enormous um, upheavals and, uh, you know, contradictions uh, going forward. 
I think it's been great for us to be able to get this kind of, you know, grounding discussion about where we are today. And, you know, it's just considering the fact that the capitalists have to take these radical measures in order to save the system from destroying itself really says something. Um, you know, people understand that we can't go on this way any longer. And especially working class and young people understand that, um, which is why many of them are drawing revolutionary ideas, drawing socialist conclusions that we do need to change the system. There has to be a better way where, you know, 270 million people aren't going to go hungry this year. You know, there has to be a new way of doing things. Um, so there are, you know, besides socialist policies, which we talk a lot, um, you know, on this show about, about how uh, there is a world that we can fight for that uh, could address some of the, the issues that we're experiencing under capitalism. There are some other thoughts about a way that we could organize our economy to help um, deal with some of these issues. Um, and one of these is what we discussed in the beginning, the um, modern monetary theory. Some people, you know, especially online, call it MMT for short. Um, so we have a speaker here who's going to talk to us about this. But before we get into the nitty gritty, um, if you could explain to us, Tony, uh, what is this and why do people say that this is the way uh, forward? Sure, Toya. Um, so MMT uh is uh, really uh, uh, two parts. It's a set of policy recommendations and a theory about the origins of money that explains those policies. MMT's central proposal is that we pay for the Green New Deal, Medicare for All, and other social programs by essentially printing money instead of taxation. Uh, and it's really positive that MMT theorists are advocating for more social spending. Working people have been starved of social spending for decades as uh, these programs get cut and cut. Uh, but I think when ordinary people hear the term printing money, we immediately think about inflation. That's what we're concerned about. And that's where the theory part of MMT comes in. Um, so I think this is uh, a very popular um, theory because it has an answer for how to pay for these social programs. And it also has uh, kind of a very thought out uh, uh, way of like doing it. So I'm gonna dive into kind of a bit of what it stands for and what uh, it proposes. So MMT has this theory that money originates from the state, that because we pay taxes, fines, and so on with in the US with dollars, for example, um, that the government's prints, that is the reason why money exists. And so their reasoning is simple. Money has value because if you didn't pay your taxes, then tax collectors would throw you in jail. So from NMT's perspective, the state is uh, kind of all powerful and controls both the quantity and value of money. That means the state can pay for whatever it wants simply by printing that money. And if there is inflation, the state can take that money away through taxation. Uh, so I do have to mention that the reason why MMT advocates for the Green New Deal and Medicare for All is not only because these are necessary social programs. MMT is an economic theory uh, and uh, it closely aligns itself with Keynesianism, which is an economic theory that uh, the government should proactively spend money to boost the capitalist economy. MMT economists 
uh, are capitalist economists, and they believe genuinely that uh, programs like the Green New Deal and Medicare for All will produce massive government spending that help businesses out of the current crisis and will be good for capitalism. Um, and uh, so to that degree, there's some other parts of MMT that are less well-known that are still essential pillars of their, uh, their program. MMT argues for a jobs guarantee uh, where everyone is paid for uh, or is paid a $15 an hour wage. Um, and I think this sounds really good at first. And as socialists, we support public works programs that give good, meaningful jobs, well-paying jobs with full benefits. Uh, when we call for a Green New Deal, we uh, always demand the creation of good union jobs to, to carry out that work. Um, uh, but the MMT uh, kind of puts forward a jobs guarantee that has a number of flaws in it uh, that we can get into later, but they, they uh, essentially see it as a way to, um, to replace welfare. Um, and then finally, the, I know I've been talking for a while, but the last point I want to make is uh, that uh, MMT also proposes that when we do have to raise taxes to reduce inflation, that we do raise taxes on working people, not corporations. Um, and I think that is a, uh, a major flaw of, uh, of MMT, among others. This is such a good explanation. Seriously, I've read so much about it. And I think this is probably like kind of the stage where I'm starting to understand what it means. So that's really good. Now, you know, before I move on to the next question that I want to ask, I want to ask the audience, have you heard of MMT before? Um, did you understand it before? What was the context that people uh, talked to you about this before? I'm really interested to know what the situation is and the conversation about it is uh, in different countries. Um, but we, we talked a little bit about kind of Bernie Sanders at the start. You mentioned that his uh, consultant is a, an avid believer in MMT. Also, we've heard comments from AOC and also others on the left in the US and internationally um, about kind of MMT as a solution, as a means to fund bold social programs. Like one of them is uh, the Green New Deal, like you mentioned. So it's clearly not something that is, you know, taught in Economics 101 and no one else talks about it. It's clearly something that's getting closer and closer into the mainstream. So do you think that these ideas kind of got this echo because... But why do you think they got this echo in the left in particular? And is it is it something that the right is talking about? Is it something that is kind of uniting both the right and the left? I think coming out of a period of cuts on, in austerity, working people, students, and youth are fed up with neoliberalism. And uh, we see this in the massive popularity of the Green New Deal and Medicare for All, which is uh, always attacked by establishment politicians with a question of who's going to pay for it. And uh, MMT stands out among other uh, economists as uh, fierce critics of neoliberalism. I think they uh, are able to gain a lot of popularity from that alone. But more importantly, they, their claim that no one has to be taxed for social spending, that we can just print the money and, and, and be able to have you know, the Green New Deal and Medicare for All, I think that is uh, a, a key driver behind its uh, popularity. Um, as socialists, we believe that we need to tax the rich because they're the ones getting rich off of our labor as workers. 
uh, taxing the rich will require a, an immense organizing effort, and we are ready to fight for it. Um, what MMT offers, uh, on the other hand, is a way to uh, avoid confrontation with the rich uh, over the issue of funding and puts forward a technocratic solution. Uh, their idea is that by not taxing corporations and by winning key appointments in governments, progressives can dodge opposition from the ruling class, uh, get into power, and uh, print money for social programs on behalf of workers without us having to fight for uh, for it. And while this is uh, a very um, seductive vision, I don't think it's politically realistic. Central banks exist in the service of capital. The Federal Reserve and the European cap uh, Central Bank prints trillions of dollars for corporations, but not for social spending. Uh, it's going to be politically impossible to turn central banks into left-wing radical institutions that print trillions for social programs. Uh, and if that, that were to, to happen, the government can simply step in the next day and, and stop that from happening. Winning the Green New Deal and Medicare for All is a tremendous task that millions of people are, are willing to fight for. Uh, and it will require millions of people from the working class, students, youth, to, uh, to fight for uh, these programs. But it won't be won by bureaucratic maneuvers or academic uh, uh, theories. This is because the ruling class's unwillingness to uh, spend on social programs is uh, not just related to funding, but also because it represents a struggle over the fruits of our work, the division between uh, capitalists and workers over uh, what Marx called the surplus product, which is uh, what society produces beyond basic needs. Um, and so the uh, struggle for social spending is, is really part of uh, a larger uh, class struggle and requires class struggle methods. Uh, MMT theorists actually disagree with Bernie Sanders on taxing the rich. Uh, they mentioned this in their uh, pamphlet called uh, How to Pay for a, a Green New Deal. And uh, Stephanie Kelton even uh, talks about it in her New York Times article that she just published. Um, so... I think this is, uh, they, they, they want to do this to avoid antagonizing the rich, to find a shortcut to winning social programs. But the reality is, there is no shortcut, and uh, in order to win these programs, we, we can't demobilize working people with, uh, with uh, not taxing the rich, with a, a watered-down jobs guarantee program. We have to mobilize as many people as we can, and that means squarely calling out the enemy, which is the capitalist class, and organizing uh, in order uh, to, to confront it. And that's why we, su we support programs like Taxing the Rich. So for those who are, you know, listening to this and it still seems like what, you know, what is this MMT? Tony wrote an article that we have on our internationalsocialist.net website. Um, so you can read a little bit, a little bit more about this. Um, but Tom, I want to give you a chance to hop into the discussion. So what do you think about all of this MMT stuff? Well, I just I, um, really wanted to make just one comment. I thought that Tony's answer was very good. Um, but it is striking, right, that at the moment in the U.S., so the, all the stimulus was basically paid for by borrowing, just borrowing more and more money, printing more and more money. Um, so that kind of goes with what MMT theorists would say. But, um, but Biden and um, Janet Yellen, who's the, the Treasury Secretary, 
um, are saying that the, um, the, the, the infrastructure plan that I mentioned before, which, you know, is deeply inadequate, but at the same time is biggest infrastructure program the U.S. has had from the federal government uh, in many decades, um, would be paid for by raising corporate taxes, uh, though it should be noted not even to the level that existed before the uh, Trump cut them, uh, the Republicans cut them in 2017, but still, and raising taxes on the wealthy. And they are also proposing a global uh, minimum tax on corporations. So uh, I, it does kind of seem to me that the Biden administration is outflanking um, MMT theorists from the left at the moment by saying that, um, you know, that they're going to pay or, or that these new programs should be paid for by more uh, raising taxes on corporations and on, on, the, on the super wealthy. I'm, and I'm not saying that to endorse the Biden people, just worth noting. Thanks, Tom. So, Tony, I want to turn the conversation a little bit to, um, you know, what people say against this idea of MMT. You know, I would imagine that a lot of people um, on the right would argue against it, but I I think they would argue against it for different reasons than we would argue against it as, you know, having a Marxist analysis on things. So seeing that you're a Marxist, I'm a Marxist. What do we say, um, you know, that's different than what the right is saying against the idea of MMT um, helping to save our, our, our system? Great question, Toya. Uh, I think as Marxists, we have to examine MMT in detail. Uh, so I'm going to start first by looking at some of their policies. I think we completely agree that we need a Green New Deal and we need Medicare for All. Uh, and we also need something like a uh, public works pro program that guarantees uh, good jobs. Uh, and so I think if we look at what the jobs guarantee is, which is a central pillar of MMT, that's, that's not what it uh, represents. A jobs guarantee uh, that MMT puts forward means leaving behind welfare benefits so that workers are forced to use their new income to pay for things that they didn't use to pay for. Uh, the jobs guarantee is designed to not compete with corporations or uh, uh, for, for labor. And the jobs guarantee uh, is intentionally uh, indexed or uh, not indexing its w uh, fixed wage to inflation. So over time, the, that $15 an hour wage would get eroded. Uh, all these concessions, uh, I think, are completely unnecessary, but uh, they are made because MMT is uh, working within a framework of uh, capitalism, and it cannot th uh, threaten the ability of employers to use unemployment as a, uh, as a threat. I think that by staying within the confines of the capitalist system, and by taking care to not tax the rich, these concessions that MMT puts forward could actually hinder the movement for social spending. And it also doesn't offer workers what we deserve. Another limitation of MMT is the historical legacy and failure of Keynesianism. By Keynesianism, I mean the social welfare states that were set up uh, mostly in Europe after uh, World War II, where advanced capitalist countries were uh, faced with you know, like a bombed out infrastructure, a militant workforce who did not want to return to the status quo, and the political threat of the Soviet Union. 
uh, and this was a period where capitalism had also entered a long boom. All these factors uh, combined to, uh, to uh, allow these states to set up large social programs. And for two decades, it seemed like government spending on social programs could prop up a capitalist, uh, capitalist economy. Um, that came to a screeching halt in the 1970s with what we call stagflation, or a combination of uh, stag stagnation and inflation. Advanced capitalist countries, including the United States, uh, entered into a recession in the early 1970s and attempted to expand their money supply, uh, or print money, uh, in order to get out of it. And what happened was a disaster. Uh, these countries were faced with high unemployment and double-digit inflation. In the U.S., for example, inflation peaked at 15% in 1980. So the ruling class saw that Keynesianism could not help their profits, and so they switched over to neoliberalism. They implemented brutal cuts and attacks on social uh, programs to boost profits. What NMT stands for is kind of a return to the Keynesian era. And while it's we as socialists we want to see a return of uh, uh, these social programs, um, we also have to understand why that failed. Uh, well, why Keynesianism failed. And it's because uh, the crisis that, that happened in the 1970s and, and all capitalist crises are driven by uh, what Marxists call a crisis of overproduction. During boom times, capitalists are motivated by profit to produce more and more uh, and introduce more and more machinery and make things faster uh, to the point where they can end up making too many things that consumers can't even uh, buy, even if they wanted to. And so... Government spending, which uh, generally goes to corporations, will not fix overproduction. Corporations can simply take that money and sit on it, as they had uh, with the coronavirus stimulus and the bailouts from 2008. Um, and so uh, when that happens, we saw that uh, corporations took uh, PPP loans, which are loans uh, meant, for, um, uh, meant for saving jobs that, that the, the government provided, and they still laid people off. Uh, this is because the state is not almighty, like MT says it is, but the capitalist state uh, exists in service to the capitalist class. And so you can't make capitalists invest when they don't want to. Under socialism, the investments and ownership of uh, plants, offices, uh, technology, and so on will be public and uh, democratic. So this problem won't occur. Uh, so in a sense, I think we can say that MNT has been tried to some degree in the past, and uh, it didn't work. Thank you so much for this. I think this is really important because, you know, there's so many kind of big economic terms and different theories, and it's really difficult to kind of understand what the differences are. And I think this has really kind of made it clear of why, as Marxists, we need to kind of take those theories with a pinch of salt. And I think another question that I kind of got from hearing that, because we keep talking about kind of inflation, we keep talking about a kind of vast amounts of money that are required for MMT to work or uh, get closer to working even. And, you know, we, especially in kind of the developed world, in, developed, in like uh, underdeveloped countries, we hear about how they try to overprint money and then it causes hyperinflation. So it seems like th this idea can't even start to work in countries like that. So I was wondering, Tom, can you, can you kind of explain 
how much MMT actually depends on the wealth of the country and especially like, you know, in the context of the US. And is it something that most other countries can't even get to the point of attempting to do? Yeah, I think this is a very important point. Um, and Tony explained that MMT um, as a theory owes a lot to Keynesianism um, and Keynesian measures were applied in the 1930s. Um, they certainly alleviated the crisis, like in the US, uh, the New Deal, you know, they, they literally the state put millions of people to work, um, but they didn't solve the crisis. Um, and then it was, of course, the post-war application of Keynesianism, but the basis for doing that today does not exist for kind of extensive, um, you know, quote unquote, welfare states, which were possible in the, in, given a massive expansion of capitalism uh, after, uh, of the capitalist economy after World War II. Um, so I'm gonna, um, it, it was already referenced how Tony's article is on the international website, but it's also in um, the journal Socialist World, which is both, uh, it's, a, it's a joint production now of the US uh, section of ISA and the international. Um, and uh, can be purchased online. But um, so this is, I'm just gonna quote from Tony. Um, he says, MMT's policies require monetary sovereignty, a list of sovereign privileges, which include full control over currency issuance, tax collection, debt issuance, and the ability to float exchange rates. And you know, those are things that the US has and some other very rich countries, but the vast majority of countries do not have, um, you know, current uh, monetary, uh, quote unquote, monetary sovereignty, for example. And as Trotsky said in the 1930s, in relation to the New Deal policies, he said this was an American policy par excellence, you know, that the US could, could do this with its reserves uh, and with its economically uh, relatively dominant position but it was not a set of, of, of uh, policies available to, uh, to many other countries, um, most other countries. So I think the same point really uh, applies uh, today. And you know, this point about hyperinflation, this is actually what's happened in Lebanon, um, where you had uh, you know, you have massive corruption. Uh, of course, they had the explosion in the port, a banking crisis, connected to this corruption um, and the result being, you know, complete devaluation of the currency and hyperinflation leading to really mass destitution. And this could be the fate of, of a number of countries in the next uh, period. Um, whereas the US, uh, by contrast, you know, with the dollar is still the main reserve currency in the world. Um, and the, the US has the ability, as we have seen, to you know, to print the money, uh, to, um, you know, to massively uh, expand its, uh, its, its national debt so far without major uh, uh, consequence. But even there, I think we have to put in a couple of caveats. The, the policies that have been implemented over the last year and a half are based on historically low interest rates, even negative interest rates, uh, and historically low inflation. And it relates to what uh, Tony was talking about, overproduction uh, in the world economy. If anything, the situation in the world economy is generally deflationary. 
uh, which is a whole other danger that actually really took hold in the 1930s. But the idea that this kind of situation, it can last indefinitely, which is what underpins uh, the, um, in a sense, the MMT idea is just, there's no historical basis uh, uh, for that. Um, you know, and we could have a bout of inflation of this, as I said earlier, even uh, this year. And I think the other point to make about these type of policies, again, you know, as Tony said, like the idea that the capitalist state can be just turned into, um, you know, um, a mechanism for constant social spending while still preserving capitalism just um, misses certain fundamental aspects of how capitalism works. And again, in the 1930s, yeah, you had, you know, the New Deal. But then um, in the middle of the 30s, they, they went for austerity policies. And they're going to, th none of the things that they're doing right now with stimulus are meant to be a long term. You know, in fact, there's not a single thing in that massive stimulus bill that is a long term gain for working people in the US. And the bill is going to come due. So, yes, for, for most parts of the world, they can't even try this stuff, you know, and they're in a much worse position, relatively speaking. In fact, even the IMF admits that, you know, it's going to be even by 2024, the, uh, the, the poorer countries will still be 4% behind what they would have been projected uh, to be, you know, in terms of the size of their economy. But even in the wealthy countries, you know, there's a bill that's going to come due for uh, the massive spending. And they're going to try, as they always do, to make the working class pay for the crisis of their system. I think these are like kind of the, the key points of what we're talking about when we talk about the contradictions of capitalism. And all of these kind of theories that we talked about, and especially MMT, are theories that are trying to kind of kind of gap these contradictions. Um, they're trying to kind of put a plaster on capitalism rather than change it. Even though I think that a lot of the supporters and advocates of MMT realize that there's something wrong with the system um, and I think a lot of the people who support it might even um, see themselves not not see themselves as true capitalists in a way but I was wondering can we kind of explain what the the, the socialist program is as opposed to MMT what are the differences so Tony can you can you kind of tell us a little bit more about that sure thing Yara uh, a socialist program will fight for what workers deserve and not concede to capitalism. All workers, whether they're employed or not, deserve good union jobs with high pay and full benefits. If the economic system can't provide for that, then it's the system that needs to change, not our program. We also desperately need the Green New Deal and Medicare for All. A socialist program would clearly point out the chief enemy of the planet and working people, which is the capitalist class, and, and uh, asked to tax the rich to pay for uh, these social programs. We also uh, want the working class to, to get active and stay active, not use uh, technocratic appointments or bureaucratic tricks to, uh, to win uh, our program. And uh, we also uh, want to make sure that these uh, programs are held accountable. Uh, in the United States, we all remember the Solyndra scandal, which uh, under President Obama, a solar company took $500 million of federal funding and did nothing with it. The only way to make sure that the Green New Deal and Medicare for All 
are, are properly implemented and safely executed uh, is to make sure that the enterprises doing these things are uh, publicly owned with democratic control. That means the green industry, big pharma, the, the, even the, you know, the top 500 biggest corporations, we, we call for all of those corporations to be taken under public uh, control with uh, democratic oversight. Um, and finally, a socialist uh, program points to the need for a socialist transformation of society, not just in one country, but internationally. As uh, Tom was saying, MMT does not have an answer for international poverty and imperialism, but socialists do. A socialist federation of countries would trade amongst each other on the basis of need and, and utility, not for profit. A socialist United States would not be you know, going to other countries and digging up oil or lithium or water. The working class of the United States under a, a, a socialist society could be making and sending over tractors, computers, all kinds of things that people of other countries need. And that's why an international socialist organization like the ISA is so important. Socialism cannot survive in one country. It has to truly be global. I want to thank you both for coming on the show with us today. This has been quite an educational episode, um, but also interesting and super relevant. Um, you know, these new ideas on how to fix our, you know, um, economic devastation really, um, you know, are, are, are gaining an ear among working class people, among youth. So it's important that we dissect these ideas. Um, so thanks again for coming on the show and hope to see you soon. But I want to move us to our shout out of the week. Um, which is not necessarily the most happy moment. Um, but as people may remember, we had um, some uh, folks on the show talking about the union drive at Amazon. And unfortunately, they lost the union drive, not for lack of trying, and it is not the end of the road for them. Um, it's come out that Amazon has um, you know, violated tons of regulations in regards to this union drive. Um, you know, one awful example is they had the, the um, postal service put a box um, for people to drop their ballots. And so people were thinking that, you know, Amazon was the one running the union drive. Um, you know, all these types of tactics and, um, you know, deceitful measures um, to get people to vote no. Um, but this doesn't mean that it's over. Um, the union is planning on going forward to try to challenge um, the no vote. And there are still workers around the country and I assume around the world that are inspired by the fight that they put up in Bessemer um, for better working conditions, um, for overtime pay, um, for the ability to go to the bathroom, for example. Um, and so workers are continuing to organize and continuing to fight and we will keep you updated. But I wanna give a special shout out um, to all the members of Socialist Alternative in the US who um, you know, went down to Bessemer, Alabama to help with the union drive, great work. And if you wanna read more about our analysis on um, what was happening on the ground, Check out the article, um, you know, the link is below in our bio um, and, you know, read it, share it with your friends, share it with your coworkers and let us know in the comments what you think. I want to thank everyone for tuning in with us today and we'll see you next week. Same time, same place. This is World to Win. Every Sunday we broadcast with speakers from across the globe, bringing you the latest news and analysis on the fast moving global events from a socialist perspective.